Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Saturday night in CCO land, Moose Miller. And tonight for Esme Murphy on WCCO Radio. Well, from collegecandy.com. I found this kind of interesting. It kind of falls under the category of, duh, (laughs) science has finally confirmed what every college student knows. A study that was recently published in the Frontiers of Human Neuroscience says that college students aren't fully awake until 10 a.m. So if you have an 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. class, And you know what? You're talking to a guy. I remember I had a 7 a.m. class in college. Oh, was that a killer. And scientists point out it isn't because college students are lazy. According to the researchers, biology has everything to do with it. There's a lot of growing evidence that indicates teenagers body clocks are set at a different time than older folks. And medical researchers suggest that this goes well into your 20s. It has nothing to do with laziness. And it also affects middle and high schoolers, obviously. So when you have classes that start well before 9 o'clock in the morning, Good luck with those classes if they're STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. (laughs) You're better served teaching that stuff after 10 o'clock in the morning because the brain for a teenager, a young person, or somebody even into their early 20s, it is wired to perform better after 10 a.m. What they don't say here, though, is how does that brain perform if it has been up early after 10 a.m.? You know, so let's say they they got up at 8 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Does that mean starting at 10 a.m. they're actually going to be more conducive to soaking in the material? The researchers did compare the impact of early morning classes to adults going to work at 5 a.m., (laughs) and found that, uh, uh, you know, nobody really likes that. So maybe we'll uh, eventually figure things out here and start a little bit later, right? They've talked a lot about that later start time for, especially for middle school and high school age students. Yeah, man, I'm all for that. Okay, yeah, it sounds great. We'll check the uh, WCCO weather forecast coming your way next. Saturday night, Moose Miller in for Esme Murphy here on WCCO. Tim Harlow is with us, the uh, traffic transportation writer for the Star Tribune. Good evening. Good evening. We pulled you in here because, well, we got a number of things to kind of kick around here, but uh, I found this kind of interesting. Uh, Now, if you're pulled over for a broken taillight, 
you might get a repair voucher instead of a ticket? It's possible, yes. There's uh, about 18 departments now that are participating in this program uh, to really help people who either can't or haven't fixed their cars to get them fixed, and they're giving them vouchers to Bobby and Steve's, and that way they can go get the repair taken care of. So, yeah. That's really cool. It. And, and, and is that in Minneapolis, St. Paul? What, what areas are we talking about here? You know, it is in Minneapolis, and there's a number of suburbs. Uh, I don't remember all of them, but, you know, it's like Roseville, Robbinsdale, Crystal, uh, Maplewood. You know, it's all over the metro area. A lot of the inner ring suburbs are doing it, um, and Minneapolis and St. Paul. So, yeah, there's there's 18 of them um, that have signed on so far. You know, I remember when uh, the Highway Helper program came into uh fruition here in Minnesota. I think we were kind of on the forefront of, of that kind of stuff, weren't we? I believe you are right on that. Because when you look at what that does uh, for the rest of the commuters and the rest of the traffic pattern, it, it's really a smart idea to try to, you know, be there as quick as you can and help people as fast as you can rather than tie things up and I've been impressed with the the different corporate sponsors that have kind of jumped into this game as well. Yeah, I mean, whether it's broken taillights or broken down cars, I mean, it does nobody any good to let it go on. And so whether you get a voucher or the highway helper to come and get that problem cleared up, I mean, I think it's a win-win for everybody. Sure. Now, on your beat as the transportation writer, what are some of the the big projects that we're kind of digesting right now in the in the greater metro area? Because you know, I th- I think back to when the Crosstown project got completely redone, and and what an impact that was for the betterment of of traffic. Because I remember I drove that a lot. Uh, the, the merges on and off were just uh, almost suicidal on that thing when it was just a simple little two lane and and no distance between the on and off merger areas. Yeah, I'm glad we're not dealing with that uh, anymore. But, uh, I mean, I think the, the the three big projects that road construction projects we're dealing with, I mean, obviously, you've got I-94 through Brooklyn Center down to Minneapolis, which is going to be with us until October. You've got another stretch of 94 under construction, you know, just east of St. Paul all the way out to uh, Century Avenue near Maplewood. And then you've got the 169 uh, Nine Mile Creek Bridge, uh, you know, through Hopkins and Edina out of commission. And yeah. I think those are the three big ones that uh, motorists are really dealing with. And, you know, I think we've done pretty well at getting around. But, you know, I-94, the worst of it has not hit us yet. When will the 169 project be finished? That's also supposed to be done. They're saying fall. We're kind of looking like October-ish, uh, middle to end of October, that should be done. Uh, and it'll bring the end of a nine-month closure. It closed in January, and um, yeah, that that created quite a bit of uh, problems at the beginning. But, you know, I think we're starting to adjust to it, although the single-lane configuration that went into effect, I think it was last week, from 394 down to uh, Lincoln Drive added a new wrinkle to that commute. Mm. Do you think that the uh, 35W bridge collapse back in, what was that, 2008, do you think that was a, a big wake-up call for us here that, 
you know what, we hear so much about infrastructure crumbling. Well, guess what? It literally did. Um, did, did we kind of wake up to that maybe a little bit earlier than other parts of the country? You know, I, I don't know if we have because, you know, we keep having these battles at the legislature over funding for roads and bridges and transit. Can't leave transit out of it. Um, and the number mm-hmm. of bridges and roads that are aging and getting worse and will be in disrepair over the next 10 years, and yet we don't allocate funding, I'm not sure if we have learned our lesson hmm. from that. What are you hearing on the Southwest uh, Rail Corridor situation? Where, where, where is that from what, what you're hearing? Um, from what I'm hearing, again, it's going to come down to funding. I mean, and are the Republicans at the state legislature, do they want to approve the project? You know, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it as 50-50, but I also have to say that that's one part of the transportation piece that my colleague Janet Moore has actually done a lot more reporting on than I have. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's still on hold. I think they're optimistic that they're going to get it. But, you know, we'll see what happens over the next three to four weeks at the legislature with uh, the transportation funding. I think that'll give us a clue as to where things are going to end up. Well, and we, I think forever, you know, here in the Metro, we always want the lion's share of the dollars, but you know, there's other outstate areas here, Alexandria to Duluth, you know, uh, to point South Albert Lee communities that go, Hey, wait a minute. You know, we have needs here as well. Oh yeah. I mean, if you look at the map of construction projects, I mean, there's dots all over the state. Um, and that's yeah. when I think it's like 211, um, but you know, the ones here in the cities, those are the ones we only hear about because like you say, most of us live here. Um, but yeah, there are, there are needs all over the state. And I think that there are needs all over the state that, you know, aren't getting addressed. I mean, especially at the county and the city level, I mean, you could probably go to any, you know, county commissioner or mayor and say, yeah, we got needs in my town, but you know, we just don't have the funding for it. Sure. Well, one of the projects that I found fascinating to watch here, because when I go out to Stillwater and I take Highway 36 and you see the bridge project and and the cantilever construction of that bridge, because they're actually building a lot of that, those big bridge block pieces right there on site. Yeah, and you know, I, I actually haven't been out there recently to uh, to see how it's coming along. But uh, the, my last conversation with MnDOT, they're they're looking at an August opening for that, so it's not that far away. After you know, a, what mm-hmm. a couple years of construction and even more before that, talking about it, uh, it's it's coming it's coming our way, and it's going to be open to traffic uh, in just a few months. So uh, I think uh, I think people are going to like what it looks like. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of exciting to actually see it come to fruition. And yet when you look at, you know, some of the, the planned or proposed projects that uh, are being talked about, uh, you know, in other parts of the Twin Cities, and, you know, you think of, uh, well, for example, you mentioned 169, but then you can go up, uh, you know, 212 and, and some of those other little corridors where, you know, Highway 10 is another one that I think of. Uh, there's work to be done in some of those areas. Yeah, I mean, Commissioner Zelli uh, from the Transportation Department specifically even alluded to Highway 10 uh, the other day when he was talking about, hey, legislator, get something done. We need long-term funding, sustainable long-term funding 
so we can get to some of these projects. And Highway 10, you know, Highway 14, Highway 23, I mean, there's a number of them, you know, outstate that, you know, if MnDOT had funding, I think that they would get that on their schedule. But right now, there, there's no money for them. Well, yeah, and that's always the the sixty four thousand dollar question. You know, you hear <laughs> when uh, I, I love it when I hear governors talking about, well, we've got a big budget surplus or whatever. We need to spend it uh, here or there, uh, and then the next uh, person comes in and it's like there is no budget surplus. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, the the thing that the commissioner was uh, trying to point out is that you know, say we took the one point six billion dollar surplus. I mean. And to somebody like me, that sounds like a lot of money. But in the world of road construction, that might buy you two, three projects, maybe, depending on what it is. I mean, especially if you think of the 35W rebuild that's supposed to start, you know, late this year, but we won't really feel the impacts until 2018. Okay, so you use that money for two or three projects. Okay, what do you do about the rest of the system? You need yeah. a, a long-term sustainable funding, you know, and, you know, motor vehicle sales tax, that's kind of declining. The gas tax has stayed flat. Uh, the last I heard, the governor is open to a proposal that maybe won't include a gas tax. When, uh, by the way, when when has the gas tax been raised? I mean, uh, you know, you look around the country and, and that's, you know, something that people just, it's like the third rail of politics. They just don't want to touch it. Oh, the state gas tax, boy, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I'm trying to remember if it was back in the 90s. Uh, it's been a long time. Will that work for an answer? Because I don't remember. Well, yeah, but, but I guess my point, my point is, you know, why don't we look at, you know, uh, set it to where, you know, you, you can uh, float it and adjust it to the price of a gallon of gas. You know, when gas is cheap. Make the tax a little bit bigger. People aren't going to feel that. I just, it, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's a good idea in theory, but you got to get the uh, the folks over at the Capitol to buy into that, I guess. Yeah. Well, they're, they're too way too scared of the Grover Nordquist uh, situations that come up. Then you know, you voted for a tax. Well, yeah, and it, it built roads and it put rebar and concrete in place and uh, provided jobs. Uh, do you have a problem with that? Personally, no, but, uh, you know, I guess there's more to it than, you know, just just the jobs and, and the yeah. concrete. I mean, there's the, the whole new tax thing has taken on a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I just, I I look at some of these projects and go, you know, we, we've done some pretty amazing things here. And, and when you invest in the infrastructure, we all get to use it and we all get to enjoy it and we all get to benefit from it. Yeah, well, and that, and that's the point. I mean, you got to take care of the system. You got to invest in it um, because if you have an eroding system, it's unsafe. It makes things harder to get around. People get angry. Uh, you know, it's just it just seems to be one of those common sense things. It's like we do really need to invest in our in our roads and transit. And right now, we're at a point where we're at an impasse. We haven't made any decisions on what we want to fund. And I think that that's what we need to do. Well, case in point, look at what, you know, happened with 169 through the Hopkins area. They waited and waited and waited. And, you know, it, 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 that's not going to get any cheaper. And, you know, they, they finally, you know, bit the bullet on that thing. Yeah, well, and you and you look at even some of the projects they're doing now. I mean, I ninety four. I think, yeah, they might get a few more years out of it, um, but really, uh, 
you know, if you can invest a little bit more on the front end, you'll get a longer life on the back end, which will actually save money and it'll prevent the DOT from having to go out and, you know, and do these patch repairs here and there and everywhere and disrupt traffic, you know, every two, three years, it, you know, seems that they're out in some of the same spots. And so we really need to come up with a solution, a long-term solution to figure out how we're going to take care of our system because it ain't getting any younger. Yeah, you got that right, brother. Hey, Tim, thanks for joining us here on a Saturday night. I know that yeah, you might have had other things to do, but we really do appreciate your time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Tim Harlow, traffic and transportation writer for the Star Tribune on WCCO Radio here on the Esme Murphy Show. It's Moose Miller sitting in tonight for Esme. Saturday night in CCO land. Moose Miller in tonight for Esme Murphy on WCCO. I almost said Jordana Green because we've been sitting in a lot for Jordana, but here it is Saturday night, April 22nd, Earth Day which is the largest civic observance in the world to raise awareness on environmental issues. More than 1 billion people in 175 countries participate in events to commemorate today. The first Earth Day, do you remember when that took place? You have to go way back to 1970. <laughs> That's a few years ago, isn't it? 47 years ago. Almost 50 years ago, U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson organized a grassroots environmental teach-in on college campuses around the country. Yeah, man, it was 1970, you know. This came after the effects of an oil spill in Santa Barbara, California. I do remember that. And he felt the need to get the word out. Today, you know, you can plant a tree, you can clean your local park, participate in a pickup trash event, which a lot of communities are doing. And doggone it, <laughs> to quote Al Franken's uh, Stuart Smalley, uh, people like that idea. It's actually gotten to be a, quite a little passionate cause. I always like that when I see people out there doing that. On Earth Day 2009, Disney released a documentary film that was called Earth, and that followed the migration paths of four animal families and kind of showcased the effects of what, you know, we've been doing to the planet as human beings. On Earth Day, the first one, 20 million people gathered in the streets of America. In 2012, more than 100,000 people in China rode bikes to reduce CO2 emissions and save fuel. So the Chinese are aware of Earth Day. Earth Day in 2011, 28 million trees were planted. That was just in Afghanistan by the Earth Day Network. Panama they had 100 endangered species of orchids that were planted and maintained to prevent their extinction in honor of Earth Day. This story kind of caught our eyes as well. 
no one has come forward to claim the gold that was stashed in a piano. A piano tuner apparently discovered what was described as a life-changing amount of gold inside of a school's piano. And because no one has come forward to claim it, the school and the tuner will reap the money. The previous owners of the piano who donated it last year said they're not upset about missing out on the big payday. That was that story that came out of England a while back, right? So nobody's come forward. The couple that donated the piano to the school most likely will not see a dime in this particular story. And they don't seem to be too upset about it. Graham and Meg Hemmings owned the piano for 33 years before donating it to a community college. They still don't know the the reasons or how the gold ended up getting stashed inside the piano. And how long was it there? You know, a lot of people are pointing towards uh, decades that apparently didn't affect the uh, sound of the piano, but it took a piano tuner to find it. Which, I don't know, maybe that'll be the subject of a movie screenplay someday, right? A couple of checks on uh, sports for us as we have been uh, following what's been going on in the NBA and also in the NHL as sadly we saw our Minnesota Wild lose in overtime to the Blues by a score of 4 to 3 so that means four games go to the Blues one goes to the Wild and the Wild are now done in the NBA it was the Raptors taking one from the Bucks who were back home again at the BMO Harris Bradley Center in Milwaukee. Toronto wins that one earlier today, 87 to 76, and the Hawks beat the Wizards by a score of 116 to 98. So Washington now leads that series two games to one. We'll check in with CBS World and National News coming up here at the top of the hour and a local news update coming your way as well here on WCCO. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.